0: eSports Podcast. This is episode number 35 with Dave Harris from Guinevere Capital. We have an interesting discussion today about the intersections between Australia and UK eSports. Dave has a long history in traditional sports as well. So we talk about bringing that model across to eSports, talk about what brands like, what they don't, why traditional sports companies would even become involved with eSports. Is it a capital play? Is it selling memberships? Is it becoming relevant to a younger audience or not? And we also talk about the underdeveloped UK market, and the advantages that are afforded to him as part of becoming involved. Once again, this uh, podcast is recorded live at IEM Sydney, the Intel Extreme Masters. We've got a whole bunch of content that's being released with people local and international coming out over the next couple of weeks. So hopefully you enjoy. Make sure you connect with us on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like to ask any questions. And uh, yeah, enjoy the podcast. We'll jump straight into an advert and get into it. Peely Computers is a retailer here in Australia that's supported big since the start. We like working with them because they're such a promoter, supporter and advocate for the grassroots and growing members within our community. They've been known to help out gaming teams with PCs when they're desperate to go overseas and play in tournaments like DreamHack and QuakeCon. They're supporting all of the local LAN, gaming and grassroots gaming events, and they're able to always provide some business advice to those who are reaching out. So if you're looking to grab yourself a gaming PC, looking to fit out your business as we did here at Big Esports, you can make sure to get in contact with the team of PLE Computers. Dave, I am Sydney 2019, mate. Welcome back to Australia. How are you?
1: Good, I'm good. Yeah, I've been spending a fair bit of time on the road recently, so it's,
0: uh, it's good to be home. Yeah, you're getting uh, a little bit sick of travelling between Australia and London yet?
1: It's all in a good cause, it's uh, exciting stuff happening either side of the world, but uh, yes, it's a, it's a long flight, although I don't mind flying that much, to be honest, it's a chance to get, catch up on a bit of sleep, uh, clear the inbox and, and watch a few movies, so uh, it is a bit of downtime, I, um, I don't actually mind it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, one of the podcasts I did, I think it was anywhere between number one to three, with Anthony, the editor of um of Tweaktown, had a kind of brought to light for me that planes are either one of two things for people they're either a catch up and sleep watch movies and don't do any work or b you can actually focus and do a lot of work at the same time which which side do you think that you sit on of those two
1: i'm a bit of both it depends about my uh, my week leading up to that flight yeah okay. I, I always intend to uh, clear the inbox but uh, at the end of the day uh some of these flights i've uh, pretty much slept through most of the 23 hours uh Lucky. i'm in both camps i try to be a worker but uh, end up a relaxer
0: <laughs> fantastic well can you just start off as we do with every podcast just give us a, a bit of a background on yourself obviously you come from you know the traditional sports market into esports as well so yeah what's your history and what was the transition like for you
1: my uh original career was actually in sports medicine so I was a sports physio worked in uh, international cricket had 10 years over in the UK worked in Premier League football clubs um, football league county cricket rugby um, but then I did a uh an MBA at Oxford I'd I've achieved everything I wanted to do on the sports medicine side, but wanted to move into sports business where I saw things could be done a lot better. Um, I did a bit of time in traditional consulting with uh, Boston Consulting Group. Then I uh, came back to Australia. I worked with Gemba, which is a sport and entertainment agency, and then uh, was consulting to the NRL and ended up cutting out the middle man and becoming a, a general manager there for two and a half years. Uh, worked across uh, marketing content digital, commercial and, and club and state services, and then mid-2016 I, I got to the point where I got sick of telling clubs how to run the business and get ignored so I thought it was time to put my money where my mouth was and I started Guinevere Capital which was a, a sports investment business and we're wheeling and dealing on some big traditional sports assets but the uh, the first deal we got done was LG Wolves, and I just saw what was happening everywhere else in the world and, and didn't think Australia was going to go on a different tangent so we've pivoted all in on esports and um, so yeah now we have a a number of uh, esports teams in Australia and, and infrastructure, and it's been quite successful. And we're we're now replicating that model over in the UK. And
0: what's the what's the top line for for your capital company? Who are you holding? Or who are you working with mainly?
1: Um, so I said it's it's a bit of a complex structure. Gwen and G- G- Capital is almost more of a brand that sits over the top that links it all together. Um, there's different F- entities and trusts sitting behind uh, the various the various properties, but in mm-hmm. Australia, our main, our main teams are the Die Wolves, um, which, uh, which is our original uh, piece, and then we have Guinevere Capital Esports Entertainment, which holds uh, Sydney Drop Bears, uh, N8 Esports and the FIFA, Superstellar, at the Esports High Performance Centre, and a couple of other projects. And then uh, we uh, we have a, a JV over in UK uh, with uh, JRJ, which is a big private equity firm, and we're all invested in – excel in the lec over there and we've recently opened up our facility in twickenham rugby stadium over there which is which is quite exciting
0: yeah and then coming i guess coming from your investment on sitting on your side and where your capital is coming from is it a mixture of vcs private investors and high net worth individuals it and is there is there one that you prefer to work with in the long term are you at that case where where you're just looking for money and extra funding to be able to go further or are you still in that case where you need some solid partners that can provide you with connections and open doors
1: at the moment, we are actually uh, raising a, a much larger um, pool of capital for a, a broader portfolio, and to be honest, probably broadening out a little bit more into sports, media, and tech. Uh, yeah. But up until now, it, it, it has been more on a project by project basis, which which makes it harder because it's a it's sort of a different business case for every every major project coming up. Um, hmm. We're lucky having that first move advantage. About two and a half years ago, we were sort of the first people from outside the industry with sport, media, entertainment backgrounds, and a bit of capital to. To come in, so obviously the, the valuations back then were um, a, uh, a lot uh, a lot more affordable than the now, where it's getting a bit more pricey. So we, mm. we did need a lot of capital to get started. We coming from Boston Consulting Group, I had a, had a bit of a network. So we um, it, it was more individuals who were passionate about the space. Um, we, we sort of had raised some significant money for some traditional sports assets uh, when we didn't do that, so the money came back. But some of those people re rolled into esports. Um, Backing me as much as anything, just because uh, back then no one really understood the understood the space. And it was a yeah a, a bit more of a punt. Um, but yeah, a lot of people. It's very hard to get VC or um, superannuation fund money. So a lot of the people who have invested us in are actually uh, individuals who are involved in the space. So we've got venture capital partners. We've got um, mm-hmm. a portfolio and finance managers for superannuation funds. We've, we've got people from um, financial public relations. But they're actually uh, investing their own money with us as opposed to they don't have the mandate to do it through their entity at the moment. Mm. So uh, I think it's particularly the, the amount of money we've been raising over here, it's, it's sometimes harder to raise um, $500,000 than is to raise $50 million, to be honest, just because the it's a mm. little bit more niche. So uh, over here it's, it's sort of amalgamation of um, of about sort of eight, eight or so um, people who have um, who are a reasonably high net worth and, and have a professional background But uh, over in the UK where we're in the LEC that obviously has a €10.5 million buy-in just for the Mm licence itself. So that's a massive step up and um, that's where we've partnered with um, a a private equity firm in Mayfair, which which has been fantastic. And I I think that's the great thing about these uh, franchises is they're they're a genuine asset as far as you you actually have a slot in the league uh, in in perpetuity. You're a a long-term partner. um, So there's no threat of relegations. You have have something there that you can build an investment case around for a uh, a more traditional investment firm
0: yeah and a little bit of a tangent but especially for those who are new to vcs and how that works what's the potential conflict of interest when a person is a is a portfolio manager at a vc but they're introducing their own personal capital and personal time to you does that then block that vc from working with you in the future does that cause concern if the vc does have extra interest in esports or current holdings
1: uh, it's the opposite actually. So it depends on the on the partner deal at the at the VC firm. But in these cases, the deal was um, has to be open. If one partner goes in, it has to be opened up to all the other partners and the firm itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we obviously talk them all through it. But uh, being a, bit, a little bit more niche in, in this case, it was just uh, the one partner that came in, and a lot of people are coming in at the moment. Like in Australia, it's it's not massive money, and they're using it as an education process. So mm. I, I always say to people. It's very hard to, to do desktop research and in, in esports. The best way is to actually get get in with someone who who has some experience and actually go on the journey with them. Um, yeah, you don't have to put a in massive investment, but by uh, um, it's just like paper trading versus real trading in the share market. The, the, the mm. best way to understand it is actually sort of have work a go with the right people and, and start to get involved, and then you can double down and ramp up from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think that's a really good explanation, and it makes sense. It's exactly the same as. The feedback that I give to investors as well is you need – in esports, you need to get your hands a little bit dirty and it doesn't cost too much to do so. You're not going to lose a $20 million portfolio because you've invested in a B-tier esports team, but you're going to learn so much over that period of time. And not even with investors, right, with brands too, you know, becoming involved. I think there's – there's a bit of a change in the market, and I'd love for you to expand on this now. We talked a little bit off off mic about this, about how a lot of teams are having trouble selling those long-term sponsorships because it's, it's a big investment. It's a big ask for a brand. Not only does the brand need to invest in you, but they also need to invest in signal boosting the campaign and the time of becoming involved with you. So maybe campaigns are the way forward, which is a cheaper, you know, slightly arm's length way for these sponsors to become involved. Are you finding similar things too?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um i said it's always been a, a massive education process for mm. we all know there's a, a bit of a generation gap there the sort of the the over 30s who are the decision makers haven't had that exposure to it and the uh, the yeah. other 30s sort of have more of a an understanding of the space and i've been through this a, a number of times Esports is actually quite a disruptor so the uh, obviously the, the media valuation agencies etc they're they're more focused on your traditional media where they're getting their clip and and where they're comfortable measuring whereas mm. Uh, one of the challenges of, of esports is the metrics aren't quite there yet for the apples to apples comparison. So you need someone within the brand to put their put their head on the chopping block because uh, it, it's harder to to actually just point at a point a report and say this is what we're getting. Um, so yeah, I, I think de risking it, and that's what most brands say that they they just want to do a campaign these days, and it's a it's an easy entry point. Um, as I was saying, we've we've done some. Um, some one-off campaigns in the past, and and then from there they're built into into long-term partnerships. But it's it's hard to ask someone to marry you on the first date sometimes. Yeah. So it is good to um yeah do a couple of things together to work out work out um uh, where the is right and and then build from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're hundred percent right, and it's it's interesting want to expand on that, what you said about having one kind of, uh, person inside who's willing to put their head on the chopping block. And this is a direct example that happened to me. So I was talking to a large, uh, like a large multinational, um, you know, there were about four of them in the room. We were talking about some different things and then started talking about influencers, started talking about shade, which we launched recently, uh, the importance of reaching out to new markets, got a lot of pushback from three of them saying, look, we already advertise a lot in newspapers and magazines and billboards. And, you know, we're more set on doing this kind of thing. You know, we're probably reaching these gamers anyway, but then sometimes you have this one, one guy who's sitting in the room and he's almost like the underground resistance. And he goes, no, you're all wrong. And he explained, I follow this eSports team. I only buy things that Summit 1G tells me to buy. I only consume my content on Twitch TV and YouTube. So all of your advertising that's on traditional TV, radio, billboards, I have not seen in the past six to eight months. And this is someone working inside the company. And sometimes, you know, it's sitting on our side of the fence, it's fantastic. You're like, yes, thank you. We've got this lovely underground resistance guy sitting on the inside that's willing to, yeah, kind of sing us from the, from the treetops.
1: Yeah, yeah, you need that that internal advocate, which is which is the key in the, in the non-endemics. Obviously, the endemics they they get the space.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. So for you, um, raising funds, where where are you at at the moment as far as series go? How many how many funding rounds have you gone through?
1: Um, yeah, so it hasn't really been that traditional uh, sort of seed uh, series A type type progression. With mm-hmm. um, as I said, we had a, a a number of people who who chipped in for the original uh, portfolio uh, over in over in Australia. Uh, and then we've sort of been raising more on a, a project by project basis. So yep. um, our, our shareholder agreement for sort of just the, the core, the core I'm um, Capital uh, piece is actually um, existing shareholders need to get rights for future rounds before anyone else is bought in, and we've never been able to bring anyone else in because the uh, the initial shareholders have, have kept doubling down and not wanting to get diluted. So oh, fantastic! Um, which is great. So we ha- we haven't been raising a, a huge amount of money over in Australia, but obviously significant. Uh, but over in the uh, UK that's where the, the the big money has been so far um mm. and as i said with a, with a 10.5 million euro buy in for that, for that franchise slot which is public and we obviously had to raise a fair bit beyond that for for operational costs that's a um mm. th- that, that's a big step up over there so at the moment we have we have excel um we have the uh the portfolio over in australia and what we're actually working through at the moment of uh how we can consolidate everything uh we have a a cross-ownership issue at the moment because we own a top-tier team in, in both Europe and um, Australia in League of Legends. So mm. uh, we're going to have to do a divestment at some stage if any of the viewers out there want to buy the top uh, League of Legends team in uh, Australia, let's have a chat. But um, we are uh, at the moment, as I said, moving towards a, um, a broader portfolio. Our, our view is that sports, media and tech are all converging and esports is at the at the head of that convergence. Uh, but at yeah. the same time, esports alone is sometimes seen as a – a bit niche Um, it's really easy to get people excited about esports it's very hard to understand a business case enough for them to get through a investment committee so Mm. i'm working with a a few top tier people in the the sports tech space etc we're we're bringing together um, some accelerators to help bring through the earlier stage stuff um, and combine that with some some more mature assets so um, our focus is more in the the uk and international market to be honest uh, australia is is very hard to raise money and it's quite a conservative um, investment community just traditionally being anchored around uh, real estate and uh, yeah. superannuation, et cetera. So it's not a criticism, it's just the the, the way it is. So uh, yeah. um, our focus is more international for the for the capital raisers at the moment.
0: Can you expand a bit for those listening on why you can't own a League of Legends team in the official riot in UK and Australia at the same time?
1: Uh, it's, it's seen as competitive integrity issue just because we'd meet at the uh, World Championships at the end of the year um assuming we get our act together on both sides of the uh both sides of the equator so hmm. um personally yeah I, I think it's a a little bit extreme but it, the rules are the rules and we are signed up to them and we're absolutely fine with that so um yeah over the next uh, few months we need to uh remove our financial interests from um from uh one of the vehicles
0: so one of the most tell-all articles, I guess, on on esports teams globally so far has been a Forbes article that came out. They called it the most valuable esports companies, but it was really a focus only on the teams, you know, not on other companies like ESL or Gfinity, etc. And and within that. Um they talked about a lot of the valuations of the top ten to twenty teams in the world, what they were claimed and, and also their revenue. So I wanted to use some of your experience and expertise to help break down a few of those with a few questions. And for anyone listening, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash three five, that's thirty-five, for the show notes and all of the links and everything we talk about today is in there. But looking looking at that, there's a lot of companies that are raising a lot of money right now. You know, yourself, Fnatic just raised nineteen million on their first external funding. You know, hundred thieves at thirty million. Thirty million seems to be the the amount that many of these teams are raising in series over the time, but the revenue numbers still aren't there at the moment. Do you think that that means that we're in a hyper growth stage? That's the revenue is going to catch up or follow that, or do you think that the teams are maybe due for a correction? There's a peak and there's about to be a bit of a trough coming afterwards.
1: Yeah, esports teams are two. Well, I think tech and sports teams are two of the hardest things to, to value in the world, and and esports uh, is at the convergence of both of those. Yeah. If you look at that Forbes article, which is, which is a yeah, really interesting article, and um, I've basically got quite a bit of insights beyond that. And the numbers are, are slightly high, but not that much higher than the um, than the the valuations that, that some of these have raised at. So, mm. um, if you look at it, like there does seem to be massive multiples, but it, it really isn't like that. I think the standard op- multiple in, on the Australian stock exchange is twelve to fourteen, and to be honest, that's where most of these multiples are. Like at the top end, you've got. Um, uh, I think uh, cloud nine and 310 million valuation on 25 million in, in, in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's that unrealistic for a, for a high growth industry. In fact, I think as long as those that trajectory carries on, it's, it's, it does seem quite, quite reasonable. Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the valuations, in a lot of cases are probably um, um, ahead of the revenues, but if you look in the sort of your standard um, tech space, that that's completely uh, normal. In fact, um, sometimes you're better off raising pre-pre revenue because you're he, yeah, mm. still selling the the dream at that stage. But the the, the fact that these guys are, are generating so much legitimate revenue, um, yeah, I think it's a. Uh, I think the, well, the the money the, the money is getting raised at those valuations, um, give or take. So, as you say, valuation is what what people are prepared to pay. My my view is. Um, just like the dot-com boom there's going to be some um there's going to be some my spaces and there's going to be some facebook's out there and you just need to um to uh play in the right space so i think our strategy is staying next to the the major publishers um which mm-hmm. we believe um is a major driver of value and the franchising processes we um we uh, feel are, are a safe place to play at the moment but uh there's a lot of third-party um uh applications and and sort of ventures being raised for at the moment and I think the worry there is that someone actually controls the IP for each of these games and at any stage they could pull an API or they could pull the IP Um, if if you're doing too well out of it the the publisher's hand will come out so I I think you really want to be sort of um, side by side with the publishers in partnership rather than trying to to, um, do stuff from the outside.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, and it's something that that Josh Inman from ESL brought up recently about how not only should you be working with publishers like yourself and, and Matt Jessup talks about quite a lot and aligning yourself, but also having their permission and, and making sure that they're aware of what you're doing. Because there's so many people in esports right now that are using other people's IP without permission, whether it be creating tournaments. And you know, I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, but for those listening, it basically means that if you're using what someone else has created for you to make money, let's say that you make a Counter Strike tournament and you serve to profit off that, but you haven't. Left let the people who make Counter Strike know or are aware of what you're doing. You know, you're profiting off someone else's work essentially, and that's yeah, it doesn't go down too well when the uh, when the you know potential cease and desist start coming.
1: Right, that's right.
0: Yeah, for, for you, I want to expand a little bit more again then on working with publishers so closely. So there are you know some teams out there who prefer to go out on their own, maybe do a lot more content creation stuff, work with influencers, maybe doing um, different brand campaigns. And I do find that a very solid model right now, what you're doing or what many other are doing is attaching yourself to those brands. So for you, you're working really closely with the publishers with Riot. You're working really closely with Overwatch, with the publishers as well. So what are some of the main benefits and are there any main detractors with working with these publishers besides... Having to raise ten and a half mil euro to <laughs> to play ball,
1: yeah, um, no, there's, there's definitely two sides to it. Um, so, I guess if you look at Riot Games, very vertically integrated, control things end to end. It has its it has its advantages and, and its drawbacks. But in our view, the advantages far outweigh the drawbacks. Um, it just provides that stability. Um, obviously, we've got Intel Extreme Masters happening with uh, with Counter Strike and. And that's much more, I guess, a free for all. You've got Valve making a game and then throwing it out to various um, various tournament organisers to, to, to run events. Um, mm. There probably isn't the same contract protection. Like the thing I really enjoy about Riot is that it has a, a contract starter base and it's more that traditional sports model. If um, mm-hmm. someone wants your player, then you, you, you can agree terms to, to trade, you can get transfer fees. And the same with Overwatch, we've received fees for trading a number of players through to. Um, North American teams, so I think that having that stability and that structure um, is is important. And when you have a, a single body sort of controlling the ecosystem, that makes it easier. Whereas if you see vac bans, you get people banned from one tournament, not from another tournament. Sometimes mm. the contracts aren't worth the, the money they're written on. And if someone works away, walks away, there's no one to enforce that. So, but um, at the same time, with a with a, a a valve title, potentially you have a lot more flexibility. So. As you say, people running around doing whatever they want. I think there's a danger at some stage that either it, 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 either Gabe's going to tighten the reins, or someone's going to buy Gabe out, and then um, yeah, that the whole ecosystem may change quite significantly. Um, I, I think an IMG or a Microsoft or something at one stage could actually um, swallow um, swallow uh, swallow Valve up if if the uh, the founder had a change of heart at one stage. Obviously, he's quite passionate about uh, things at the moment, but it's a Incredibly interesting business at the moment. Obviously, Steam and they have different revenue streams to the to the, to the standard publisher. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think the free-for-all model um, isn't going to grow as far um, as the the publisher-driven model with the, with the franchise leagues as Activision, Activision Blizzard are and and uh, and Riot are at the moment. And I think if you look at Ubisoft and some of some of those other publishers, they're starting to move more towards that model as well.
0: Is there interest from you in in participating in the Overwatch World League and and the um you know subsequent Call of Duty World League that's been announced?
1: Um yeah, we always are in these conversations and and want to want to have a look at these things. I, I think from a local perspective over in Australia it's just being such a smaller market it's really hard to build a business case to to try and recoup some of those that those franchise fees. Yeah. Um, particularly it, it's been announced that Overwatch is going towards home and away um we struggle flying around the world a couple of times a year for major internationals. In, in mm. some of the things we get to be able to do that consistently um, is is a challenge. And I, I think the business model for for those are, are very different to, um, to traditional esports, where uh, you're almost becoming an events management business or a marketing business, as opposed to a an esports team is a much larger component reliant on on running. Uh, Running actual game days rather than just the uh, the online piece, and, and just letting the, the publisher do the good work, and and you need to um, you just need to concentrate on your team and and promoting that. So um, mm. yeah, it's, it's an interesting model. I, I think it's quite exciting. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um how things pan out over the next couple
0: of years. And for those you know those people that you know who are involved with things like the Overwatch World League, does that add extra stress to them because it's now adding, adding, you know, you talked about how they've moved to doing home and away games now. So they're, you know, sitting there spending their capital at a certain rate, you know, as a startup does. They've got their burn and churn, et cetera. But now you're asking them to accelerate that rate by, by facilitating home and away games. What's the sentiment based around that?
1: Um, I, I think it's, it's different for different groups. So if you look at sort of League of Legends um, in, in ALCS, some of the traditional um sports teams have come in to a a very uh, traditional esports environment have struggled like the the golden guardians or clutch gaming with a clutch gaming with a golden state warriors and, and, um, and Cleveland Cavaliers um, not Cleveland Cavaliers, sorry. Um, But the, on the flip side, I think traditional sports organizations may struggle in the, um, the Blizzard Activision model where, you need to be able to put on a, 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 an event in a stadium, and that's where I think the traditional um, sports players, like the, the hundred thieves, etc., are going to do really well. Whereas it's a, a lot harder for a, um, a, an endemic esports org like a Cloud Nine or something to be able to, to be able to replicate that. So mm. I, I think that the two models are actually getting getting quite different, and I, I think the skill set of the ownership group and the organisation needs to be different. So I, I don't think one's better. To, Better than the other. I think there's just you, you need um, different types of organisations to thrive in those two different environments.
0: Yeah. So changing tact a little bit and, and talking about kind of the the models and the business models that you're going for at the moment. Obviously, all of the properties you're working with, it's a very strong reference towards traditional sports, whether that be the business case or whether it be who you're partnering with. Can you run us down a little bit about some of these partnerships that you built with traditional sporting teams, organisations, and venues facilities? Yeah.
1: So in. Um in Sydney, we obviously have the Esports High Performance Centre at Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, Sydney Cricket Ground Trust have been fantastic partners for us. They've, they've, they've really helped us out, and, and I feel like we've, we've helped them as well. Um, they're going through a massive stadium redevelopment at the moment, and, and part of the the, um, the process for that was future-proofing the stadium, and, and we've obviously given some input on, on esports. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had the, the Minister for Sport come through. We've had a lot of stakeholders come through, and... I guess it's quite similar to our partnership with the um, RFU for Twickenham Stadium over in um, over in UK, where both these organisations have a very ageing membership base and are, are seen as a, a very traditional, um, a very traditional body. Um, so, yeah. as with many things, esports is actually bringing a younger demographic to their to their venue and, and to their organisation. Um, and, and part of it is actually sort of yeah connecting with younger people, but part of it is, is even just the the image of being not want to be seen as old and stuffy, but being seen to be a bit more innovative and progressive. So um, it, it's been fantastic in in both um, in both situations. And then I, I guess that the knock on from that is um, partnering with uh, partnering with them to actually bring in commercial deals. So um, be that for uh, content and events or uh, or, or sponsorships um, in mm-hmm. in the Sydney Creek Ground. We've, we've partnered with the Sydney Swans and we've done the HyperX deal with them so okay. uh, HyperX supports the Dye Wolves um, they support the Esports High Performance Centre and they uh, support the Sydney Swans so they are on the horse on the coach's box will have a head, uh, HyperX headset on um, they get some they've had some um, signage up behind the goals um, they had uh, stuff happening at a match day but then we have the uh, the Swans players coming to the Esports High Performance Centre compete against some of the and Esports versus sports type of uh, content series, which uh, the pro-am stuff goes very well, um, and then uh, you have your traditional um, esports uh, content with the Die and, and then we have replicate the model and done it again with the Western Sydney Wanderers, HyperX, and then at Esports, our esports FIFA team. So, our two des- two best players are uh, are loaned to Western Sydney Wanderers for the e league, um, and they're sponsored by by HyperX. So HyperX is on the e league jersey. They have some of the Western Sydney Wanderers players out come play our FIFA players for a bit of banter and a bit of another esports versus sports content series and then um, that they also get some traditional sports assets at the um, at the Wanderers games when it comes to signage etc so you look at HyperX they're quite smart they they do well in esports they want to branch out into lifestyle and and sort of us helping bridge them out of esports into traditional sports is a is a great way to do that.
0: Yeah, looking at the tech market, HyperX seemingly came out of nowhere. You know, With my history in in Corsair, they became a very strong competitor right out of the gate. And it's really interesting for me and, and for those who are kind of that tech nerd side of things, the HyperX Cloud 2, which is probably their you – know, really is their flagship product. It's fantastic price for, for a good quality. I reviewed it and gave it 99%, I think, at Tweaktown. But it's interesting that that's actually a licensed deal off QPAD. QPAD designed that headset. Yeah. But it's not often you see that it – that a peripheral company comes out of nowhere into such fame like that. Unless they're like Final Mouse and they've they've got that kind of memey thing down and they have managed to work with Ninja, which is not cheap in itself. But HyperX has seemed to build a very genuine following. They've had a lot of fantastic content over the series of time as well. I remember them doing a lot of fantastic content with Cloud9 when they were heavily yep. into Counter Strike you know, right back in the beginning, kind of their first, you know, move out of League of Legends and, and with EG doing a lot of that content as well.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you saw it the other day, but, yeah, another great piece of Cloud9 content, they did the cosplay, the sneaky cosplay but um, oh, to, for yeah. the, the KDA, but then put it across the, uh, the the other players, including Zazel and all that. So it was a bit yeah. cringe, but uh, quality content. And, yeah, HyperX is a great case study where they've, they, obviously Kingston, um, traditionally a sort of a, a memory space, moved into the... Um, Moved into headsets and peripherals and, and went really hard at supporting esports early on to break into the market. And now they're going back the other way. And um, I, I love the philosophy of trying to normalize gaming. And, and one of the yeah. great ways to do it is actually just to, to partner up with uh, the gamers up with traditional sports people and, and traditional uh, celebrities. And then uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's great that they're now looking at becoming more of a beats than a um than a gaming brand, which is which is fantastic. It's a, yeah. it's a great org.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, and once again, for those who are interested in business models the traditional tech companies, it's really interesting to see Kingston HyperX versus Corsair because they come from the same background. You know, Corsair did Focus for a long time on increasing the performance um, and working with that hardcore audience. Where HyperX, I think, really got the jump on them jumping into esports. And, you know, I'd say that Corsair was a little bit late to the game with, you know, they first kind of started working with CLG uh, during their rise, especially in Counter Strike and League of Legends and stuff, too. So, yeah, for anyone out there, I'd suggest looking at those two different companies. But Corsair and HyperX both have very similar um, social pushes as well. I think they're two of the best companies by quite a long margin on social media, the way they deal with their community, the way they make their content. They make relevant memes. You know, Corsair owns Reddit, which is ridiculous because Reddit is so anti-corporate, but they're all over Reddit all the time, whereas HyperX really owns the esports media space, Um, similar to what HDC does as well. Yeah, really cool to see that kind of stuff. So you mentioned before that um, a lot of the sports, traditional sports entities that you're working with are looking to gain access to a younger audience. What else are are they looking for? Are some of these teams looking to invest in in you and other esports teams simply as a capital play? Are they looking to sign more memberships? Are they just looking for more Facebook followers? What what relevance do they have to the esports market?
1: Yeah, I think it needs to be more broader than than just a a pure investment. There needs to be synergies for the the traditional sports players coming, but it will be different for every team. So if you hear Nigel Smart talk about the Adelaide Crows investment, they're in a unique situation in in, uh, Australian sport where they sell out most of their memberships, their their match day, their their, their sponsorships. So this Mm -hmm. is actually sort of expanding their market both – uh, locally and internationally, so um, they see it as a different play, and now they're getting involved more in the the high schools programs and the grassroots, and that's where AFL has always had its strength with the OzKick programs, with those junior development programs, sort of capturing the fans from a very young age. Um, whereas if you look at yeah. you look at Justin Rzeszke at, um, at the Bombers when he talks about it, it's it's much more. Um, uh, they don't sell at the stadium, but so this is a way of connecting with a, a younger audience, and but it's not as simple as. Um, make them an esports fan, and then they're going to come to the footy. Um, some of these people will never be um, fans of AFL, but they've still made a connection. They've captured the data. They have a relationship with a um, with a younger fan base, which again, when it comes to to sponsorships, etc., can can be packaged in. and And they've gone deep. Adelaide Crows have gone broad across a large number of titles, um, uh, not necessarily trying to be the top team in any title, but um, being uh, across the entire ecosystem where. Um, uh, the bombs have gone hard on one title league of legends and um, and have done very well. And that's what I've always said about the the keys to actually have your support staff and the infrastructure um, behind your esports team. And that's that they've used the hangar. They've got a number of people involved to, to I guess add that layer of professionalism over five young kids playing games. And yeah, this year you've seen it's been incredibly successful, particularly when the Die Wolves are through first splits. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> Great opening for these guys to come through.
0: Yeah 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 they're definitely done well and it's really interesting anecdotal um thing for that is I know somebody's gone the opposite. There was a guy that did a lot of my mentoring courses, an avid Dota fan. And for those who aren't aware, usually Dota fans are, are anti-League of Legends fans. They're, they're very fierce competitors in games. And he's been a Bombers member his whole life. And when the Bombers got into League of Legends, he went, all right, I'm going to start watching League of Legends now. So it's gone both. Yeah. It's gone the full way around 360. Yeah. But you're 100% right. And I think that, you know, it's a. I talked in podcast 34, which we recorded live yesterday, but you know, they released weekly about kind of why we created Shade and Shade Crew. And it's similar. Um, to what you were saying about HyperX, about normalising gaming but also about what these traditional sports people are looking to do and my opinion is that everyone's a gamer these days and a lot of our talent at Shade it's never really been cool to talk about the fact that you're a gamer but now it's bringing that to light and if nothing else, it's an extra touch point because I think if you go to the forty and you look at all the 21-year-old males who are in the audience there, a lot of them play a bit of Fortnite on their phone or on a console. They play a bit of FIFA and stuff as well. So now it's validating them across to another market. And it's even, if nothing else, bringing a second touch point like this This guy that I mentored with the fact that, okay, I really did like the Bombers, but maybe they sit on the shelf for eSports every now and then, but now it's Bombers 24-7. It's Bombers in eSports and it's Bombers in traditional sports. So he's doubling down.
1: Yep, yep, I agree.
0: Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, we talked about some interesting things, but once again, want to change tack just a little bit now to talk a little about about UK esports and its development. So a lot in this podcast I've focused on, you know, what's happening in the Australian New Zealand market. We've also talked about what's happening a lot in the North American market. So now we've got got you over here. I'd love to talk a little bit about UK and, and also the wider EU. For someone who sits outside of the market such as myself, it looks like the UK market is underdeveloped to where it should be, especially when you compare it to what's happening over in Sweden, you know, championed by nip with with the nip burger and mcdonald's they've got their own chocolate bar um you know there's funding from the government for things like dream um esports is a sport in norway i believe now um, partly due to australis and the massive rise of them working with sponsors like audi and, and large capital plays and a player-owned organization and such can you give me a quick rundown on where uk esports is right now and, and maybe some of the things that might have been holding it back and you know whether i'm right at all in my assumptions
1: uh, yes, you are right in that it's behind, but um I said, it's actually a, a, an opportunity. We're, that's why we're there. Uh, we, were, we had the first mover advantage in the Australian market to an extent uh, when it comes to uh, investing capital and bringing sort of that traditional expertise from the outside. And, and we've done exactly the same in UK because it has been, it's obviously massive in Europe esports, but UK has been behind. we we spend a lot of time talking about why that is. And uh, to be honest, I, I think having a strong traditional sports culture can sometimes hold back your, your eSports culture. Um, okay. But it, we've got the same thesis as when we came in, in here. I think there's three points that that lead to that that hockey stick moment in eSports, which Australia has been through over the last couple of years during our time uh, involved, or three years now. Um, it's the big uh, non-endemic sponsors coming in. Um, so when you're getting your quick service restaurants, your Hungry Jacks, your McDonald's coming in, et cetera. Um, the major events coming, uh, you can talk to your blue and face about esports, but until you actually go to one of these events um, and can touch and feel it, you, you don't really get it. And the fact that mm-hmm. Intel Extreme Masters is now coming into its uh, third iteration, we've got the Melbourne Esports Open. People now get it. If you take a, a sponsor into that, see the Roaring Crowd and everything, they, they understand it doesn't matter if it's computer games, tiddlywinks or basketball in the middle. It's just that shared experience and yeah. something that people are passionate about. 100%, okay. and, and the third is traditional sports getting involved. Um, and, and, like, it, it doesn't actually sort of change the underlying numbers at all, but it just actually gave, gives it that stamp of authenticity and and people, um, people actually – it almost validates it, which is, um, again, is silly, but at the same time with that older generation, particularly – all the decision makers, be it investment or or sponsors, are generally in that category um, that they feel much more comfortable about it when a, when it's been attached to a traditional sport. So that's obviously happened in Australia. and There's some major events coming through um, UK now. We feel like the uh, the, the big dynamic sponsors um, are going to sort of cross out of Europe and into the UK, where a lot of the the brand spend actually is um, in London, and um, and yeah, we see things like the EPL, as in Little E, the E Premier League, and things kicking off. Um, I don't think that's a massive initiative, but it's that first step for the traditional brands, um, traditional sports brands crossing into eSports. So we feel like we've timed it really well, um, better too early and too late in these things. Um, and then, yeah, at the same time, one of the great things about Australia is it's a smaller market where you can win stuff and get onto the international stage. In UK, as I said, it's been a great route to actually be the, the UK um, member of a European competition in the LEC. So we have, um, yeah, huge belief in the... LEC and they've really been shooting the lights out compared to other other um, English speaking regions for, for League of Legends, um, and then to be able to sort of be the flag bearer for for UK, we see Fnatic more as a global brand, not a UK brand, so we feel mm. like it's a great position to be in.
0: With uh, with with the UK market, who are they looking at for the future? You know, obviously here in Australia, the tech spend is very similar to North America. The esports, um, you know, high performance aspect and the teams and the branding is very similar to NA. And you know, quite often we say here in Australia that we're anywhere from three to eight years behind North America, depending on what's happening. So, who does the UK look to for the future?
1: Um, to be honest, I think Europe is actually forging its own future, and like it used to be in some circles seen as the poorer cousin to to um to North America, but mm-hmm. to be honest, it's actually overtaking it at the moment. Um, from an investment point of view, obviously there's a lot more investment flooding in from North America because the traditional sports owners over there are all billionaires and, and like it as an add-on, whereas in Australia, there's definitely no billionaires owning um, traditional sports teams. It's been a big mm. disaster when they have. If you look at unless rugby. they want to become a millionaire, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I, I think Europe has actually been developing more sustainably. It's not people throwing the chequebook at it. The, the the orgs all need to be run um, run run properly, and I, I think that's led to um, led to them pulling away. And I said, if you look essentially what they've done with Riot at the LEC, they've, they've brought in some people from the outside. Um, to to really properly commercialize it get the content strategy and everything everything right and um you, if you look at the leadership they now have at the LEC, um it really is pulling away and and Europe is actually a a larger market size than um the north america obviously with variety of la- languages and some fragmentation it can be a challenge but i i think at the moment they're bridging that really well and um but at the end of the day if we're in the main english speaking country in the uh the, the the biggest league in the in the world which we think it will be um when it comes to at least the English-speaking world outside of China and, and, and maybe Korea, uh, mm-hmm. we, we feel it's a, a great place to be.
0: Can you touch on the LEC and the differences between that and what happens here in Australia, the OPL, or over with the NALCS in America?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's 13 regions uh, around the world for, for League of Legends, and you, you'd probably say there's there's four or five major regions in Europe, North America, Korea, China, and, and then you've still got LMS, which is Taiwan and um and Hong Kong and, and maybe Vietnam sort of on the fringe and then a, a bunch of um, smaller or developing regions. Um, it all feeds into the same sort of um, uh, global system so we, we all get places in the, uh, the mid-season invitational or, or, or the world champs at the end of the year. Um, not that I actually believe the numbers but if you look at the the Dire Wolves, the world champs last year, there was 52 million people apparently watching one game. um, And really that was against Edward Gaming, the Chinese team. So I'd imagine the majority of those were were Chinese eyeballs. But, um, yeah, no no matter how big the actual number is, it's a hell of a lot bigger than the biggest sporting event in Australia, which is um, State of Origin, which has about 4 million people watching it. So Mm. the the numbers are huge and it's it's great to be part of that ecosystem. But I I guess the difference is um, just from a market size, uh, Australia and this – Goes across all all industries, not just eSport. Is a much smaller market. There's less, less brand dollars. Um, there's a, a smaller ecosystem. So I, I think if you look at the viewership stats, it's probably about ten times over in um, over in Europe to what, what we get in Oceana over here. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's just a bigger play. Um, obviously, they can justify a, a huge buy-in for a franchise over there. Where um, over here, it's it's not as um it, it's not as viable to to sort of charge people that to to buy in. Um, and the problem is without that buy in you don't have the same sort of um uh revenue to try and kickstart the the central ecosystem and and get and get things rolling so it's a um mm-hmm. it's a challenge over here just being subscale i guess um but at the end of the day it's it, you're still part of that that one bigger publisher and
0: organization and league which is a uh, which is exciting so if, unpacking some of what you talked about with Australia versus UK and NA um, the first mover advantage is basically gone here in Australia, and the cap is much smaller. So, what is the advantage, if any, with joining into Australia' the ecosystem at this stage?
1: I said it's an easier path to the um, to the uh, to the World Championships when you need to be sort of chiefs and dire wolves versus um, mm-hmm. trying to knock off uh, TSM and Cloud Nine. It's uh, yeah, you you can get. Uh, a more direct path um, with with less competition, I guess, into into those big events, which is uh, hmm. which is exciting. I, I think we've got a, a strong traditional sports culture which we can draw from. If you look at um, traditional sports, we punch above our weight. If you look at a population, we shouldn't compete at anything in the world. But yeah. sort of like initiatives of like the Australian Institute of Sport back in the day, sort of taking a a, a more uh, a more dedicated approach to developing talent because you can't afford to churn and burn because you don't have the population. Um, I I think that's a competitive Mm -hmm. advantage um, over here. Um, And and even though um, the the chance to pick up a a major organisation for for very little money is probably past now – you're going to be up to seven figures uh, for, for buying into a, a serious org over here. It's still mm-hmm. a hell of a lot less than the um, the, yeah, the eight eight or nine figures over the over the in other places in the world. so yeah um, yeah the, the chances to, to pick up a, a really economical um, uh, developed franchise are probably past here but there's still a much better value than um, or a much uh, much lower risk for, for your investment over here rather than the bigger numbers you have to do elsewhere.
0: Yeah and I guess you can be you know you can be a much bigger fish in a smaller pond right and yeah. I think one of the advantages Australia brings is like what you said is it's a very sport heavy nation we punch above our weight not only I guess in sport but what's really interesting to me is technology you know people like Altasian, and there's been yeah. a lot of very successful blockchain projects out of Australia like Horizon State and Power Ledger and, and you know these kind of actual innovative blockchains it's not just you know trying to get Lambos and, and make money yeah. um, and also what's been really interesting to me and I'd love to get your thoughts on this is we punch above our weight so much in the form of commentators do you think there's a special source that Australians bring we've got people that have pioneered the commentary mm-hmm. market like uh, you know Toby One and Dota and gods in in dota as well we've got a bunch of aussies that are going between here and china all the time doing commentary we've got people on the counter-strike world stage right now with sponge at iem and such too yeah
1: i completely agree and anytime we get shade thrown at uh, one of my teams by north american commentator uh, i point out that uh yeah we we don't uh necessarily overperform in um on the uh the team side but they definitely don't on the uh, on the shout casting side so yeah we've got amazing Mm. talent and i think it's just just that irreverent style um yeah the uh, the Aussies are uh, inverted commas shit talking um, is actually uh, something we do very well and uh, yeah you look across yeah. all our um, all our um, all, all our different publishers and titles they've all got really good um, really good Aussie um, shoutcasters at a, at a local level but also going through to the uh, international level and yeah as with everything it hits that, that critical mass where um, it, it was enough bigger uh, big players or bigger. Uh, Bigger uh, shoutcasters from a region—that's the first place people start looking for the for the next wave of talent. So, Yeah, mm. I, I think it's fantastic, and uh, the uh, yeah the the fact that there's so many uh, around the world, but still uh, actually look after the Aussies, and that they always always come back to here. And that, even if they're not Australian, there's been a lot of international shoutcasters that have served their time in Australia and then gone back into the um, international scene. The fact that everyone out there has a soft spot for Australia is um it's fantastic because uh, yeah they're, they're controlling the narrative a lot of the time when they're um when they're doing the commentary.
0: Yeah, is that, and a, a bit of a tangent, I guess, as to what we talked about and, and what we had in the question list. So I want to get your thoughts on um, development in Australia. So uh, taking apart what some of you said is is that it, Australia sometimes can be an easy pathway to get overseas. So is it a good business model then to fly a Korean team to live in Australia for a couple of years and to win the local tournaments and go over from there? Is it, Or is it the case of you can fly to Australia where it's a lower spend to become involved, train the team, and then ship them off to live in the US? Or so, are those kind of viable models and it's questions that have been asked quite a lot but not so much answered.
1: Yeah, no, I think Australia has some big challenges. Like I've been bigging it, bigging it up but at the same time it's incredibly isolated. Um, so the problem is if, it, if you could fly, fly 20 Korean teams in here it would be fantastic but the problem is um, if you've got I – mean, we see it again and again uh, a team stomps it domestically in, in Australia then goes mm-hmm. overseas and then uh, is trying to out-micro just running at some of the best players in the world just trying to outskill yep. them and realise that – um, yeah, they're not up to that standard. So yeah. uh, I think the challenge here is we're so isolated we don't get to because of the ping. It's not a technology problem; it's a speed of light problem. We can't get to um, South Korea and back um, effectively to to scrim on a on a, on a reasonable ping. Um, I, I think it's a challenge. Um, so the fact that you, you really need to um, fly your team to other regions to get to get high level competition on a consistent basis. Uh, means that yeah, flying one team out here isn't going to isn't going to help. But we have obviously a lot of uh, support and infrastructure that we can use to to try and make the best out of the talent we've got with the um with the practice they're getting. So um, yeah, it'd be great if we get the the best of both worlds. But at the moment, we just don't have that critical mass of top level talent over here to to push the players. So on a week to week basis, that they're, they're getting challenged as, as much as they need to be to to go to that next level. But at the same time, we've got some big announcements. Um, coming up, which uh, may even be out by the time this is showing, as far as we're, we're looking to bring in some um, real, real veteran talent from um, some of the biggest leaguers in the world over to Australia. And I think that's really important for, for developing rookies. Um, mm-hmm. I think using the Die example, we won everything for two years, had a undefeated year last year. Um, but despite that, when we went to the World Champs, we again, we got towed up. Um, so Curtis, our coach, took a, a very different philosophy um, coming to the start of this year and went all rookies with... Um, Sort of fantastic attitudes and and the right the right approach to growth but um yeah with, with an entire team of rookies um, yeah the, the results show it was just that they were improving but it was just a, a bridge too far so so now we, we're going back to bring in some of the the world's best players and some veterans um, to, to, to lead the charge but uh, still have that that 10-man roster of bringing the um bringing the rookies through but rookies in isolation working together just don't develop as fast as you need them to be so you need that 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 blend of experience and and youth. So, um, Mm. yeah, that's what we're trying to build.
0: Yeah, and to, and to phrase uh, kind of the question that I'm going to ask is that a lot of the time, like you were saying, in the season splits or during the breaks, a team from Australia in, in League of Legends will fly over to Korea to boot camp for a long time to immerse themselves with players that are much better than them, learn off them and grow. Was it one of your players or one of advanced players that talked about they can feel the percentage skill loss when they come back to Australia over a period of time until they can get back over there again to Korea?
1: Yeah, I, I, I've heard players say that. I'm not, I'm not sure if it, was, if it was one of ours or not. But to be honest, I, I think that the career buff happens a lot the first time you go over there, but it has diminishing returns. Um, mm. I, I think it's really important. And we, we were the first team for, in League of Legends with the Wolves to, to boot camp over there. Um, uh, I guess, yeah, that was uh, – now it's becoming more, than, more the norm. Um, that gave us a competitive edge back then. But mm-hmm. I, I think it just lets you know what good looks like. Um, and yep. that I, I think the first time you run into – a um yeah Korean solo queue or, or, or play big eight international teams it's it's a shock to the system um and you understand the gap between over here and over there um so it, it really does give give players a kick with the butt to work harder and, and also understand where, where where the weaknesses are but to be honest going back and again and again it's you, you get a um a little bit of a buff while you're there but the meta changes and, and it doesn't carry on as much so I, I think there's a lot more value the first time you do it but it's not um and, and you – as soon as you come back, I guess you, you feel that little drop initially, but they shouldn't be taking away sort of the the, the specifics they learn um, when playing in, in, in solo queue. They should be looking at more macro as far as uh, you know, what are these players doing that is different to what we're doing over in Australia and actually mm-hmm. using that as your development plan to, to what you need to work on. But it, it's not a matter of two, three weeks working on something while you're over there. It's actually identifying that gap and then over the entire year using what you do have in Australia to to develop in those areas
0: yeah and is it is it a concern or just something that's part of life in australia where the best players or the best teams become good and then they get bought by someone overseas and move out of australia taking that talent away um
1: as i said as long as there's um as long as there's transfer fees involved then it actually does make sense and our, our whole philosophy with the with the city drop bears is we haven't spent 20 million plus on our owl license where the top contenders team in the region, um, mm-hmm. hopefully in the world, if we manage to win through here and uh, and through China. But um, our whole philosophy of bringing in talent is we're we're going to actively try and get them into the OWL. So our, our our whole whole mode is to actually um, build relationships with OWL teams and get them in their opportunity up at that up at that next level. And mm. um, I, I think we've had four. Um, Four players and coaches go through already. Um, last night we announced Tito Watts just gone to Boston, which is um, which is fantastic. Even though it's uh, going to make a bit of a challenge winning the uh, the, the final um, final this weekend. Yeah. Um, and then we uh, confidentially we have another another transfer about to be announced soon too. So there'll, there'll be six that have come through in um, oh, just wow. over a year. A whole team. Um, yeah. Well, effectively a whole a whole, a whole team. So, um, but that that's a great a great story for us and for australia and and to be honest players come to us because and it's the same same at direwalls that they're not just coming to us because they want to stomp domestically they want to go to the next level and compete internationally and and that's what we're doing we're we're trying to help them with that dream and if it's with us it's great if it's we can help them get to a a bigger team overseas and that's fantastic as well so yeah it's a great narrative and then yeah particularly in um particularly in overwatch we uh, sometimes get a transfer fee which sort of Helps underwrite the program because, as we we're discussing earlier, it's it's a little bit harder to get sponsorships um, in, in the uh, Overwatch ecosystem. So, um, mm. transfer fees help help supplement the money we're investing in the program.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, six players over, and like we said, it's you know virtually a whole team that's yeah. been sent over to that space. And it's you know it's, it's almost like you're becoming one of those select AFL high schools, right? You know, these yeah. kids that are going to these high schools in Australia because they know that that's where the scouts are looking, that's where the development's going to happen, and they're going to get signed to the Magpies or Broncos if they're doing NRL or such after that.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's what we we're saying before. Once you hit that critical mass, then, then you have the relationships, you have people looking at you, and then, and then you become part of that pathway through to through to their system.
0: That and the fact that Drop Bears is probably the best name for a team in Australia. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it resonates quite well with a. Uh, it's quite funny. There's, there's two categories. There's people in Australia who get it, and there's people overseas that don't. But um, yeah, I yeah. still think it's a cool name. So it's uh, yeah, it, it's doing well. So hopefully, um, yeah, you never know. One day we may see it in the AWL, but uh, if not, let's uh, hope it just continues as a, a as a bigger uh, a big contenders brand. And uh, I think it's exciting now that Overwatch Contenders is actually feeding through to some international competitions and. And to be, to be honest, even though the OWL is is global, I think you get more of an inter-region rivalry with the sort of um, the, the seven regions sometimes. So mm. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the 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 showdown events that are upcoming.
0: So besides besides Overwatch and besides the age-old tired discussion of brands maybe or maybe not getting into Counter Strike, what what um, games have you seen best performing for brands as a whole? Uh,
1: There's it, a very um, general question so I uh, said so like I keep coming back to LEC um, League of Legends but if you see the so of the, the level of content they've done is it's been phenomenal for for the Kia motors have integrated the talent and um, mm-hmm. the, the ads are, are as good as uh, television quality ads um, and it just opens the floodgates so once Kia came at a league level then you've got Audi the, with a with a yeah Australis and Origin then you've got um mercedes going to sk gaming then you've got bmw to go going over to cloud nine so i think it's just like it opens the floodgates um when, when it comes to um uh 18 plus uh brands i, I think that's where a massive opportunity is and, and some publishers won't work with them and others will so um that's why i think where Strike actually does well like some people don't want to work with them because there's headshots and terrorists which is understandable but at the same time things like mm. Uh, sports betting companies and all that are more open to, to working that space. And because 18 plus, it actually makes it more more appropriate for, for, for those brands. So um, I, I think 18 plus brands is where there's a, a massive opportunity. Um, obviously from a brand perspective, from the the league and the team side, you've got to be really careful who you work with. But I, I think the fact that um, – uh, we, we're now seeing alcohol brand coming into Overwatch is is really exciting. You can yeah. have your, interesting. your Bud Light up there. Um, no matter what you think of the beer, it's great that they're um, supporting eSports. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I think, as I said, I think it's going to become more and more of a long tail and and these mm-hmm. big games are going to become bigger um, with, with the Overwatch and the um, – and the league of legends, and we're interested to see what happens with COD over the um, over the next year or so. Um, mm. I think those bigger central supported leagues are going to get some of the bigger non endemic brands um, going in, and I think it's just going to be a, a really long tail. It's going to be harder for some of the the smaller um the smaller esports to to attract that, just because you, you need that central infrastructure and and that scale. Um, so yeah, as I said my advice is to, to to look to the the bigger games and the bigger franchise leagues, which is which is disappointing for people who are over here. Like it was only two or three years ago, you could be five kids that are great at game and you could actually be in the top leagues in no time. Whereas Hmm. uh, I think that the dream of um, just starting up your own org and then being in the big leagues um, a couple of years later is starting to to be an issue. Yeah. I guess the flip side of um, so much investment coming in and, and so much sort of infrastructure and um and support coming in is the fact that it's becoming harder and harder for that rags richer story to come through so um yeah i, I think mm-hmm. it's going to become serious business and the big players are just going to get bigger and bigger but it's going to get um harder and harder for for the smaller players and the the, the more grassroots stuff to to secure those uh, that those, those brands
0: Yeah, and it goes back to what we are talking about before, right, with de-risking. You know, if you're involved with the publisher like Riot and like you mentioned before, if if someone cheats or, you know, is being dishonest or is being abusive in-game, they can get banned from that IP and they're never allowed to come back. And that goes across globally with the game itself and it goes globally with the tournaments Mm -hmm. and the whole ecosystem they control. So then you can say to, you know, a blue chip brand, yes, you are protected, you know, a publicly listed brand that's very scared of negativity around Mm -hmm. their IP and, and their company, that you can actually provide some sort of safety there for them.
1: That's right. Right, and like you you hear it said far too often, but people always talk about the wild west, and uh, it's it's always been there. But I think the gap between the wild west and the 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 more the more stable properties is is starting to 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 widen now. And um, there's a few few publishers that I mentioned Ubisoft earlier who are are really starting to invest in and trying to to push themselves across. And it'll be interesting to see what Valve do with bigger titles, particularly with um, obviously with ESL and Dreamhack as, as that conduit. I think yeah some of those big tos are still going to be able to drag some of those those titles into the into the mainstream space but um yeah i I think it's going to move more towards the the haves and the have-nots there's not going to be um as as many um as many of the sort of the the rocket leagues etc etc coming through from sort of almost that indie space to be um to be mainstream but i said you never know what's around the corner You, you had PUBG, then all of a sudden after that you had Fortnite, and then after that you had apex legends so um i think in the gaming space there's going to be big things coming through but it's going to be harder and harder for them to be a, a legitimate esports title which we which we're seeing
0: mm so what does the next 6 months look like for dave and going to be capital
1: um a lot of flights back and forward to for to europe uh, at, at the moment but yeah as i said we're we're pulling towards a um a a a, a broader raise for our portfolio which we'll be adding to um the I think the the teams are the sexy piece but there's we like to invest up and down the value chain and there's other Mm -hmm. stuff happening which um is probably gonna become more and more of a focus once we've sort of got some some major stable teams um in place so um yeah it's it's exciting space at the moment I've got far more opportunities than capacity so um part of it is actually trying to bulk up our our central resources and not just capital but human capital as well so we've got the uh the right people people working on these things but um Mm. Yeah, I say, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, other than maybe UFC, nothing's come out of the blue to be a, a multi-billion dollar um, sport over the last 30, 40 years, and yeah. it, uh, the fact that it's gone so far organically, and now it's, it's getting a bit more structure and investment put around it, it's, a, it's such an exciting space, uh, even though I'm constantly sleep-deprived, I'm absolutely loving life at the moment, so yeah, mm. I'm excited to see where the six months goes, but Anyone in esports who knows says they know, they know where they're going to be in six months' time is delusional, basically. It's uh, <laughs> it's changing so rapidly and opportunities just keep coming up. So, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out.
0: Yeah, very true. So touching quickly on your hires as well, so a lot of people that listen to this podcast are people in traditional industries that are looking to come across to esports or are you know, esports veterans that are looking at the next step. What what kind of people are you looking to hire? What positions are you looking to fill? In? And what uh, experience and expertise or degrees do they need? Um, yeah, it's a...
1: It's one we talk about constantly, and unfortunately, it's just one of those inter- industries where you'd love to have someone with ten years esports experience that also has twenty years commercial experience, but they just generally don't Be exist nice. at the moment. Yeah. So, um yeah. yeah, so it's always a compromise, and like it's it, like we debate it a lot, and there's lots of people on, on both sides. Um I, I think the world's coming to coming around to the fact that it's easier to learn esports, and it's easier to learn a, a commercial skill set, and we're seeing that. So. um my advice is you you re, you need to be good at some fun, function, and whether that's graphic design, legal, data analytics, it doesn't matter. You, you actually need a need to be um, really good at something, and then apply that to esports. Um, yep. Coming through as a, an esports person is getting harder and harder to do. It's the same as traditional sports, it's uh, obviously having that great le- base level of passion is important. And, but at the same time, we we had a, a saying: if you're a fan, buy a ticket. Basically, you, you actually need to be really good at doing something with some sort of function within within eSports. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah my, my advice is um, when it comes to, a, yeah, degrees or whatever, it, it doesn't matter what you do, do it well, and then then find a way to, to apply it to eSports. And uh, I think more and more legitimate roles um, in, in eSports are are coming up as far as everything from finance to legal, et cetera. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, one of the challenges is it's still one of those spaces that everyone wants to get into. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you're going to be under overworked, underpaid for a, for a while, and even if you get the top, you're still <laughs> still in that situation. But um, yeah, I, I think um, get, getting, as I said earlier, on getting that experience and actually getting working with the right people who can, can be sort of that that mentoring role. Um, one of the things I love is the fact that everyone's been bootstrapping, and in that in that startup phase, at some stage, so the, the whole industry is, mm. is very um, very open and friendly to helping other people out. So I, I think, as yet, yeah, just find some of those people. Um, get some experience with them and and, and build from there
0: yeah fantastic yeah you're definitely right on the higher part it's one thing i've talked about in one of the previous podcasts and before with people that come up to me and say i want to get a job in esports it's like saying i want to get a job in cars do you want to be a mechanic Mm -hmm. do you want to be a race car driver Mm -hmm. do you want to be an engineer uh, you know, or do you want to run the V8 supercars in mm. Australia? They're all mm. very different jobs yeah. and yeah, you need to bring something across to eSports, mm. whether that's some kind of relevant experience and or degree and a lot of passion. Yeah, yeah definitely to become involved in it because there's not many people that have cashed out yet, but mm. it's starting to become a much more realistic thing. It's yeah. happening, you know, with with the sale of things, you know, MLG in the past, you know, Blizzard Activision picking that up and using mm. that really well, you know, ESL with, with MTG. Um, yeah, and a lot of teams right now at the moment. Where do you see... Or, you know, and I guess this is a very generalistic and roundabout question, but can you make a prediction on when esports teams are going to start making um, exits from it, the founders?
1: Yeah, we're interested. Like, you've seen that there's been a couple of, well, um, Infinite Esports is on the block with, um on the sales block for about 150 million with Optic um, and a few others in their portfolio at the moment. Mm. Uh, you see, Clutch has just been bought out by, um, by seventy uh, sixes and the dignitas brand. so uh, you you are seeing things happening. But to be honest, uh, most people are, the valuations are just going up at the moment, so it'd be silly to jump off at the moment. So what what people are doing? They're diluting themselves. They're taking um they're taking investment whether it's all going back in or taking a little bit of money off the table. So um, yeah, I, I, I said while while it's on such a high growth phase, if, if you're passionate about it, like I don't know why you would exit at the moment. To be honest. Um, But, um, yeah, I I think it's smart to start taking a a little bit of money off the table and de-risking for you. So if you're you're all in on it yourself, then, um, yeah, diversifying somehow. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But, um, yeah, to to me, it would be a bit of a red flag if a a founder was trying to sell out completely at the moment and walk away. um, Yeah, You'd be be asking some questions about what's going on in his org.
0: Yeah, and what's happening on the books, right? Yeah, 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 100%. So, Dave, mate, where, where can people follow you? Where can they follow your journey?
1: Uh, Dave Harris Oz is in D-A-V-E-H-A-W-R-I-S-A-U-S on Twitter. Um, I'm on, um, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's Dave Harris 1 on that one. Um, and, uh, yeah, feel free to um, hit me up with an email. I'm, I'm always open, um, D Harris at com. If you can spell Guinevere, then you'll get through to me.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today, mate. Great. And thank Pleasure. you. Thank you to listening in to the Big Esports podcast. This has been episode number 35 with Dave Harris. And for Dave's email, how to spell his company, or for anything we've talked about today, including links to the Forbes article as mentioned, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 35. That's the number 35, where you'll get all that information made available to you. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.